Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Tori Jorgensen. We are honored to discuss his new book, Stutthof Diaries for Truth and Honor, published by Friesen Press 2022. It is an honor to be in dialogue today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity to share with us the wisdom left behind by your father in his diary. Again, to our listeners, it is the Stutthof Diaries Collection for Truth and Honor. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself and tell us about your father? Um, What inspired your father to write this memoir? And what inspired you to invest and sacrifice the time into publishing it um, in a volume accessible to readers today in the year 2022 and 2023. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Ari. I, I was born in uh, uh, Kristiansund, Norway in uh, 1947, actually, uh, two years after World War II. Kristiansund is a fishing town on the uh, North Sea. Its main product was a salted cod, uh, dried cod, uh, the main ingredient to the Latin dish of bacalao. But I'll begin my story in the year 1952, when I was visiting my grandmother. I came across a book entitled Norsk Politi Bak Pigtro, which which translated is Norwegian Police Behind Barbed Wire. I was only five at the time, and the book really caught my eye. While leafing through it, a book, uh, through the book, one particular drawing got my attention and left a lasting impression on me. It was a drawing of two young men being hung. I was determined at that time that I would... uh, pursue the story. We immigrated to Canada in 1957. My father understood my interest in the subject, but he prevented me from pursuing it. And for respect to my father, I did not until he passed in 1998. It wasn't until later, after our immigration to Canada, why we um, why we left Canada uh, or Norway, and uh, we left our friends and our family and came to a country whose language I didn't even speak, except my father spoke English. He explained that after the war, he was commissioned by the Norwegian government to arrest the fifth columnist, that those were um, corroborators with the Nazis. He was then forced to arrest his friends, 
classmates, and teachers. And according to him, it became a witch hunt. If you didn't like someone, you pointed the finger at them and saying they were a corroborator. He wanted to get a new start in Canada and leave behind Europe where things had gone so wrong. During our stay in Canada, my father suffered greatly from PTSD, that's post-traumatic traumatic stress disorder, and would have regular nightmares. In 1967, he and my family, the rest of my family, returned to Norway, where he dedicated his life to dealing with Norwegians who had also suffered during the war from PTSD, but had also turned to alcoholism. I stayed to, f to finish my education. I met my wife, Grace, in college. We have four children of our own and 10 grandchildren. So <laughs> my father knew my interest in writing the book in English. Uh, he also made me promise not to pursue the project and for respect to him, I didn't until he passed, like I said, in 1998. For the last 22 years, I have spent translating diaries and memoirs. I even took a film crew with me in 2010 to film the last Norwegian survivors of Stutov. Then in 2022, I published an account of the Norwegian police, of which my father was one, under the title, For Truth and Honor. I wanted to make sure that their message was told before it was lost. You know, there is a saying by Theodore White that I kept in the back of my head. And he says, history is always best written generations after the event when clouded fact and memory have all fused into what can be accepted as truth, whether it be so or not. I didn't want to let that happen. We're now uh, seeking uh, basically funding for the documentary and a TV uh, miniseries uh, based on my father's life. What are the primary themes in this memoir? Is there a specific message that this memoir is tr is trying to convey? Well, <clears throat> true adventure stories can make us better people. Not because we see heroes and villains in them. We can see those in fiction, but because they are true. We know we could be like the people in them. This uh, World War II story of the Norwegian police is such a story. It is a story of the redemptive power of making a conscious choice against evil, a choice available to each of us, a choice for truth and honor. Can you tell us about your father? What are your memories of him? What were his primary character virtues? Okay, my father um, graduated from public school in 1936. His ability as in uh, mathematics and mechanical engineering helped him actually to get a uh, 
a modest income. Um, my uh, my grandfather on my father's side was in the Merchant Marine, though I never met him because he died in 1941 of diabetes. This was six years before I was born. After my father graduated, the Norwegian law requires that he be conscripted and that he had to serve two years in the military service. My father entered officer's candidate school in a place called Lillehammer in 1936. At Smedstadsmoen, or Lillehammer, he was given an Arabian horse that he called Apollos. Being an Arabian horse and being very skittish, this Apollos kicked my father and left a big scar in, on his forehead, uh, quite pronounced, actually. While recovering, he was asked to apply to Hanover Technicog School because of his ability and in, uh, in mechanical engineering. The application consisted of a math test, which my father passed um, easily. The, the, and the Hock School would only allow 10 non-German students to enter each year. At the Huck School in, in Hanover, my father and his roommate, Hans, a, who was actually a Mennonite, uh, at, attended the Hitler's rally on September 26, 1938, at the, at the Sportsplatz in, uh, in Berlin. And this was the, the speech that he gave about Sudetenland. They also witnessed, both, both Hans and my father, both witnessed on November 9th, 1938, they, from, they witnessed Kristallnacht and, uh, from their apartment window. Their 19th, <laughs> I'm, I'm just giving you a, a, a rundown, I think is, their 1939 class project was the world's what we what we think is the world's first pollution control device for the 1939 Volkswagen. That was their class project, because the Volkswagen uh, was um, uh, designed through a wind tunnel, and which is which is for aeronautics, right? My father's specialty was jet propulsion, and specifically the combustion chamber of the turbojet. When Germany invaded Poland in 19, uh, on September 1st, 1939, his roommate Hans was obligated to join the Wehrmacht. And my father had to carry a student letter and showed it regularly to the authorities. When Norway was invaded in, on April 9, 1940, and eventually capitulated, he was allowed to go back to Norway. That was his, that's the Thank you for sharing that. I, I genuinely appreciate it. Can you tell us about the Greeny concentration camp? Where was it located? When was it created? How did it evolve? What were conditions like there? Yeah, the, uh, Greeny is located uh, uh, northeast of the center of Oslo. 
in a municipality called Batum, which is Batum is the fifth, I understand, the fifth largest municipality in Norway. Greeley was originally built as a woman, as a women's prison. Its uh, construction started in 1938, but wasn't finished until 1940. It was never put to the use as a woman's women's prison. The German invasion of Norway changed all that, and the Nazis took over the camp initially. The German used it as a prison camp for detained Norwegian military officers uh, captured during the, uh, the the campaign, the Norwegian campaign called. Uh, and uh, the, the status was changed in June 1940 when it was used to house the Wehrmacht. Uh, then in June of 1941, Greeny's uh, status was again changed to a concentration camp. The camp was run by the SS and Gestapo. As Greeny's uh, inmate population grew, more barracks were used to accommodate the increase of Norwegian uh, political prisoners. Many were held at Grini before being shipped to uh, camps in both Germany and, and in Poland. In fact, many of them went, uh, well, to the police went to uh, Stutthof. Uh, as part of, of the interview that I did uh, in 2010, I interviewed the curator of Grini, Rolf Holbeck is his name, who was a who was also a, a former prisoner, and uh, um, I have that basically uh, uh, as part of the documentary. Can you tell us about the Jewish victims in Stutthof? In what ways, if any, was their suffering unique in relation to the suffering of others? Yeah, that is a very sore point. The Jews suffered greatly, especially the Jewish women. <clears throat> Several large farms own owners were given Jewish women workers for various um, work details. Several of the large farm uh, would go to the Jewish women's camp where the SS had the women parade in front of them. The farmers would pick out the women they wanted and march them to work on their farms. The women were made to work at strenuous jobs from sunrise to sunset, and particularly no food or rest. When the women could no longer work because of exhaustion and starvation, the farmer would march the women back to the camp and straight into the gas chamber. Afterwards, the farmers would go back to the Jewish women camp and pick out new one, new workers. In July of 1944, there came a large transport of Jewish women and children to the main camp. Long trains with open and closed cattle wagons after the German offensive was halted at Stalingrad, 
and the subsequent Russian offense westward, evacuation transports from several places, such as Riga and Kanus, arrived regularly. The Russian uh, forced the Germans to uh, move their prisoners towards the west. Most of the transports were destined to Auschwitz or Bikenau. But soon, there was no more room to accept the refugees there. And that's why they ended up in Stutov. One of the transports um, that came from the ghetto um, in Kaunas was a 15-year-old girl named Trudy Berger and her mother. They lived three years in the ghetto and 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 did hard labor for the Germans. And uh, she has her own book that you can, uh, you know, uh, read about the, uh, the uh, death camp, uh, what was going on there. The Norwegian prisoners witnessed 200 Jewish women, both young and old. And this was uh, part of the memory, uh, you know, their memory lined up stark naked in front of the adjoining barracks in the Jewish women's camp. The women stood there for several hours before being marched to the gas chamber. I mean, the story is is, is, is heart-wrenching. The typhoid, like, like, for example, the, the, the typhoid uh, epidemic in the main camp spread ramp rapidly, and numerous prisoners died daily, especially Jewish women. Several fires were lit and to burn the bodies, but it was not enough. The capacity of the fires was not sufficient for the number of prisoners dying each day. In the Jewish camp, uh, in the Jewish women camp alone, 500 women died every day. In one month, it's estimated that 8,000 died of typhoid. And, you know, the, the old crematorium burned down in, in the October of 1944, but uh, new ovens with higher capacity were built in the camp. The new crematorium had three ovens and was in full operation by Christmas. That's a horrible, horrible suffering. Thank you. My father's story actually comes in here. In January of 1944, the police were given uh, a doctor uh, from the hospital in the main camp, a Lithuanian prisoner named uh, Atanas Starkis. Starkis identified the bacteria that my father had suffered uh, suffered from. He explained that the stomach disease was a bacteria called Spirocator. Spirocator. <laughs> the bacteria belonged to the same strain as syphilis. And uh, in some concentration camps, the disease had a mortality rate of nearly 90%. The, the, 
Starkus said that indicated that the disease was more severe than typhoid. Typhoid, but he, uh, my dad's like, like I said, suffered from 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 that uh, stomach disease, bacteria, all of his life, all of his life. Thank you for sharing that. What was Organisation Tot? Can you explain this to our listeners? Well, Organization Taut was a uh, was a civil and military um, engineering organization in the Nazi um, in Nazi Germany uh, from 1933 to 1945, I believe, and it was named after uh, uh, Fritz Taut, T O D T, an engineer and a senior Nazi, actually. The organization was responsible for a great range of engineering projects, both in Nazi Germany and occupied territories. The organization became notorious for using forced labor. From 1943 until 1945, during the last phase of the Third Reich. In fact, this is where my sto- the story of my father uh, is is particularly uh, strong. It, as mentioned, uh, as I mentioned previously, there were several large farm owners who were given Jewish women uh, workers to uh, very uh, to do various work details. Several of the large farm would go to the Jewish women's camp, and where the SS had the women parade in front of them. The farmer then would pick out the uh, the, the girls, the, the women. On this one particular occasion, when my father was working on the expansion project under organization Tot, one Jewish girl fell on her knees in front of my father to ask him for help. She was, according to my mother, my, my, but my father wouldn't talk about this, but according to my mother, he looked her in, he looked into her face and would never forget it. The guard said uh, to him that if you help her, she asked for help. If you help her, we'll shoot you both. Um, then he watched her go into the gas chamber. My father never forgot that face. Throughout the years, he would wake up in a scream as, as he would see her face. He suffered, like I said, from PTSD. He, he did not tell me that. It was my mother that had to tell me that, especially when, when uh, we came to Canada and my dad would wake up in in these uh, uh, nightmares, <clears throat> and my my mother, who was concerned that this was, would startle us, so she explained to us the nightmares. Can you tell us more about the typhus outbreak in Stutthof? Were there any other disease outbreaks? What were the causes and ramifications of this? Well, like I. Like I started to say, um, in uh, in October of 1944, 
the the old crematorium uh, burned down, um, but they erected new uh, new uh, ovens, and uh, and uh, actually three of them, uh, three uh, new ovens were erected because they couldn't burn the bodies fast enough for the typhus, and so they they uh, they added. Um, um, three ovens, uh, and uh, it, w- it was in full operation uh, uh, by uh, by uh, Christmas of nineteen forty four. Um, and and getting back to to the 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 the, the, the Jewish uh, question. During a short period, the crematorium was not fully used. Um, the available capacity was used to daily pick out 30 of the weakest and sickest Jewish women. These women were put in, in a wagon and transported either to the gas chamber or the crematorium. That, you know, I... I am totally, I, I mean, as I did the research on this, I was just, I was beside myself. Wow, I can imagine. It's it's very difficult to, to read and learn about such horror. The, the inhumanity to, uh, you know, to, uh, to uh, the, exp- uh, the, the Nazi, uh, um, expression of of, of uh, evil. I, I just I don't. Can you comment on the role played by Joseph Terboven in overseeing Nazi-occupied Norway? What was his role in the deportations of Norwegians and Scandinavians? What was his relationship with Vidkun Quisling like? What role did he play in the events presented in this memoir? Well, two weeks after the uh, invasion of Norway, Joseph Tobolven arrived in Oslo as the new Reichskommissar, National Commissioner, I guess, to administer the occupation of Norway. Tobolven was subject only to Adolf Hitler and ruled Norway with an iron fist. Tobolven didn't really get along with Quisling. Uh, Turboven eventually accepted a certain national summling, which is the party uh, uh, created by Quisling, that, uh, you know, his pre- uh, they, he, he did accept eventually the presence of, uh, of the, uh, in the government, but remained convinced uh, Unconvinced about Quisling, Quisling to me, uh, to you know, to all indication, was a weak individual. He uh, he was an idealist and uh, not a not like Turboven, who was, you know, matter of fact that this is the way it is and so on. But uh, Turboven ruled Norway with an iron fist. Um, the quick and brutal annihilation of the coastal fishing town 
of Tel Aviv was personally overseen by Reich Commissar, uh, by the, uh, the Commissar. And Tel Aviv was totally, uh, completely erased from the map. Tel Aviv was where the uh, um, the uh, Shetland uh, 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 the Shetland uh, um, bus was, where they 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 took um, uh, people that wanted to escape the, the Nazis to to Shetland, and like it was a the the, the Shetland bus that they they call it, and. Uh, but when when Quisling found out, uh, or uh, not, Victor uh, Boven found out about it, he totally he wiped it out and totally erased it from the map. You can't find an, a, a German map of Tel Aviv <laughs> at all. It was totally uh, wiped out. Now, under the regulations of protection of um, in 1942. Terboven introduced the death penalty for a variety of crimes, among them leaving the country without permission, listening to illegal radio, being caught with illegal newspapers, and helping prisoners of war or, uh, or refugees. And I want to interject here that my grandfather on my mother's side my grandfather and my uncle, Ingvar, my grandfather, Paulus, was his name, was a Methodist minister, and he kept a radio in the basement of his, uh, of his church. On this one occasion, he, um, the, it was a Sunday service, and um, on this one occasion, somebody had not turned off the radio. So when all of a sudden the um, the the uh, uh, the radio announced, this is the BBC, and it was during the the the, the morning service, the Sunday service. The Germans were outside listening for radios that to illegal radios and one smart lady all of a sudden decided to uh, or she she started on the piano or, or on the organ and started singing and so on and so on to drown out the radio and uh, my, you know somebody went down and 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 turned it off but <laughs> um if he would have been caught, they would have been executed. They could have been executed. Now, at the same time, Ingvar delivered illegal newspapers. Like they would, they would then, um, uh, you know, ga gather the information from the uh, um, from the BBC and, and listening to the uh, King Hokon, who uh, then would uh, would would talk about how the world how, how the war was going and so on and so on and they would then print that information and they, this is all illegal newspapers if you get caught with that well Ingvar was on the, the the Methodist Church is on a hill and 
on he lost his chain on on um, on on his bike. He lost his chain, and it came off. And he 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 told the uh, the the soldiers. He waved to the soldiers below to get away, get away because his chain had had off. And uh, he went right through them with the illegal newspapers, believe it or not. He went right through them and uh, and they waved him on, you know, because he was and uh, it, it actually saved his I, I believe saved his life. And uh, he he told me that story in uh, uh, <laughs> before. Uh, but uh, that was scary. That was scary. So, my 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 both my uh, uncle and my grandfather, well, on the, on my mother's side, was was part of the underground. <laughs> so, but my mother didn't know anything about it because uh, they wanted to keep her in the dark. You know. So, anyways, thank you. I thought that was a humorous story. Thank you. Can you comment on the role and fates of King Hakon V under Nazi occupation in Norway? Um, there, there is a there is a, uh, a film called Kongens Nai, which is the the king's choice. It, it was filmed um, maybe ten years ago. That tells of the dramatic story of the three days of the events in the life of King Hokon. And it is actually a pretty good movie. <laughs> On April 9, 1940, Norway was invaded, as, as, as was mentioned, by Germany. Uh, and Norway was now at war. It was important for the king and the Sturting. The Sturting is what we call the parliament. Uh, the king and the Sturting, the parliament, not be captured by the Germans. At around 7.30 a.m., King Håkon and a party, including Crown Prince Olaf, his crown, uh, his wife, Crown Prince Martha, their children, Rangnhild Ostrid, and the current king of Norway, King Harald, most of the members of the Sturting uh, Parliament left Oslo, uh, the capital of Oslo. They traveled to a special train in Hamad, a town 130 kilometers north. The Sturting convened, now the, the Parliament then convened in Hamad during the afternoon of April 9th where King Håkon made his speech. And his speech says this, I am, I am deeply affected by the responsibility laid on me if Germany, if German demands is, not, is rejected. The responsibility for the calamities that will befall people and country is indeed grave that I dread to make it, to take it. It rests upon the government to decide, but my position is clear. For my part, I cannot accept the German demands. It would conflict 
with all that I consider being my duty as a king of Norway. Since I came to this country nearly 35 years ago, the decision is yours. But if you choose to accept the German demands, I will abdicate. I cannot appoint Quisling as prime minister. Boy, I, I get emotional when I read that. Thank you. That Thank you. Speech. It's okay. Thank you. It's okay. It's okay. The Stuting, the, the, the parliament, unanimously decided to reject the German demand and, along with the, the, uh, the, the, the royal party. And they, they, then they, they were exiled into London. And that's where the uh, broadcast, the BBC, that my, fa my grandfather and so on listened to uh, regular, uh, on a regular basis, actually, and printed the news. <laughs> anyway. Thank you. I was surprised that Fitkin Quisling is only referred to sporadically in this memoir. Why is this so? How did your father feel about him? What was Quisling's role in the creation, evolution, and administration of concentration camps inside and outside Norway? Well, uh, my my father, for one, was uh, not a fan of the National Summoning Party. He saw firsthand what the Nazis did in when he went to uh, to um, to Hanover. And and listen and listened at the um, sports plaza in 1938 uh, for um, Hitler's speech. He also saw the the uh, Kristallnacht. He knew exactly what what the Nazi uh, regime was like. He had no use for um, for Quisling. Even when he was growing up, uh, and, and so on, because Quisling started, I believe, in 1933, um, he he formed the National Assembly. They never even won, and um, um, I don't know if they even elected. I think they got 2.9 percent of the votes, uh, and um, and probably only the members of their own party <laughs> voted for them. Uh, I I don't know, but he uh, my my father had no use for for him. Um, so um, the National Assembling Party was regarded by uh, most Norwegians as a version of the German Nazi Party. The party was founded, uh, like I said, in, in 1933 with Quisling and a former uh, minister of defense in the farmer's government in, in uh, 1931 to 33. Uh, the party never gained direct political influence, but it made its mark on Norwegian politics nonetheless. Despite the fact that it never managed to get more than two and a half percent of the vote and failed to elect even one candidate to the, to the parliament because uh, because a factor bipolar uh, anyway uh, the essential parties in Norway viewed it as a Norwegian version 
version of the uh, German Nazis and generally refused to cooperate with with uh, with, with the party. Now, uh, on uh, when Norway was invaded on April 9th at um, at seven thirty that evening, uh, Quisling declared himself the prime minister of, of Norway, and uh, but the the uh, the the problem with 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 him de- declaring that, that the, the Germans the, the Germans didn't uh, realize that the the party was so hated that he um, that's why in to some degree Turboven. Uh, came to administer the, uh, um, you know, the um, uh, to to administer the uh, uh, the occupation of Norway. Quisling was hated, and uh, I, anyways, sorry. Thank you. That was very generous of you. In it, to respond, thank you for what you had shared. Can you tell us about Falstad Camp? Why is it a noteworthy camp? Where was it located? Why was it established? When was it administered? Can you contextualize it for us? Well, uh, Falstad is uh, located in the south of, of Trondheim, in the uh, town of Levanger, in a district called Tunderlaget. Falstad was originally founded in 1985, in 1895, pardon me, as a boarding school for boys as part of the general movement in Europe. With the invasion of Norway, German authorities originally visited Falstad in August 1941 with the intention of making it the center for the German Lebensborn program in Norway. But this, the Germans soon decided that the Falstad uh, was not suitable. And uh, <clears throat> Falstad fell, and the, the Falstad concentration camp uh, fell under the authority of Reich Commissar Josef Terboven and Heinrich Phyllis. Now, Phyllis commanded the security police and commanded a 200-member Einsatzgruppe of the, 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 uh, of the security police. For all practical purposes, though, Falstad became the personal prison of Gerhard Flesch, leader of the regional Einsatzkommando, the killing group based in Trondheim. Flesh uh, would regularly use the, the nearby forest, Falstad Skugen, as a site for extrajudicial executions of POW and, and following special trials of political and Jewish prisoners. Policemen arrested in northern half of Norway were first taken to Volan Gestapo headquarters in Trondheim and interrogated before transported to Falstad. That was my, where my father was uh, transported to. My father related to me 
that when it was time for the police to be transferred to Stutov concentration camp, the prisoners marched along Karl Johan Gotte, which is the street, in their summer clothes, because they were given back the, the, their summer clothes, because they were arrested in August, right? Um, to, with their hands and feet bound, forcing them to hop like rabbits to Müllergarten Nitten, which is the headquarters of the state police. From Müllergarten, the prisoners were transported and in a covered truck to uh, uh, be transported uh, to uh, to Stutthof. Uh, actually, Stetten the city in Stettin, and then transported by train to Stutthof. But the humiliation that they underwent, he he he, he keeps bringing up. The, the humiliation that, uh, you know, being tied, being, uh, being uh, uh, clothed in their, in their, in their summer clothes, in the snow, uh, they were marched with their feet tied and their hands tied and they had to hop like rabbits. It was just humiliating for them. Thank you for sharing this. What are the interconnections between Norway and the German Lebensborn program? What does the memoir refer to in regard to this? Well, Lebensborn, basically, it was uh, it's actually Lebensborn means uh, fount of life. It's a program was a notorious Nazi project which tried to increase the Aryan population, believe it or not. They used various inhuman methods, including state-sponsored breeding and ab abducting of children from Nazi-occupied um, countries. Now, the Aryan had blue eyes and blonde hair. The Scandinavian perfect, uh, fit perfectly into this requirement. The Lebensborn program encouraged German soldiers to have relationships with Norwegian women. In uh, in Norway, only over, uh, about 8,000 children were born from such relationship. In fact, <clears throat> on a, the, the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the singing group ABBA. Yes, I am. Annefried Lingstad, the She's the redhead. Okay. Was born to Norwegian mother, Sinny Lingstad, and a German sergeant, Alfred Haas, in 1945. Wow. A few months after uh, Germany surrendered, her father de departed back to Germany, afraid of facing humiliation. And that's... Uh, and that's a terrible uh, thing, you know, like um, if afraid of to face humiliation by fellow Norwegians, Sinny Lingstad took her baby Anifrid and immigrated to Sweden. You know, I'm not really proud of my uh, country that way. In 2000, 
18, the Norwegian government offered an official apology to women and their offspring who were ostracized, stigmatized, and in some cases deported because of their relationships with the German soldiers during World War II. I know. I'm really not proud of my country for that. I appreciate you confiding this in us. I am sincerely grateful for your words of contrition, uh, but I'm also very grateful for your eloquent response. I'm, I'm sincerely appreciative. Can you tell us about your mother? How did she meet your father? How did your father's ordeal impact their relationship? Well, my uh, like I, I mentioned, uh, I said <laughs> my mother was uh, was a daughter of a Methodist minister in. Uh, and uh, and they like I like I said they were sort of in the underground. Uh, my uh, be, because um, t- the way that my my mom and uh, my mother and father met was that um, he he was on a um, he he had returned to Nor uh, to uh, to Norway. Uh, at the time, and uh, he was in the police. He he joined the police, uh, police force, and him and his uh, uh, buddy uh, were walking together, uh, and and he told uh, uh, the guy's name was Trygve Lukke. He told him that I think as my my mother stepped out of of the. Uh, um, you know, uh, I forget. It's a it's a store, and and she stepped out, and he said to her, "I think I see my wife, my future wife." Wow! <laughs> and he started pursuing her. Now, she was a pastor's daughter, so and he was kind of a, a you know, uh, well. He played the the he he danced like he he did the walls and so on and so on. So the for the two of them to get together is actually a story in itself. But they did get um, engaged, and um, but uh, <clears throat> like my uh, like I like I said earlier that uh, he. Um, he was arrested on August 16th, and they were engaged. Uh, in in Norway, you can't you can't um, get engaged until you're 20 years old. That that was the, the 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 regulations at the time. So on July 1st, she turned 20, and by August 16th, she didn't know. Uh, well, they, they they were then enga- uh, they were engaged for less than a month, and uh, when he was arrested, she didn't know where he went, and uh, she didn't learn that for three weeks, three four weeks, uh, that um, where, where he went. So um, he was, she was really distraught. It just got it just got engaged, and now he's gone. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing. You allude to the consumption of horse meats 
in Stotthof. Can you say more about this? Um, yeah. <laughs> My father could, after Stutov, when he returned to Stutov, he could not put up with horse meat. Uh, it, it, uh, the, uh, and also the other thing that he, he couldn't stand was um, soup, uh, beet soup and potato soup, because what they would do in, at Stutov, they would, um, they would peel the uh, unwashed, they would peel the, uh, the 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 peelings and put it into the the, the soup, and he said that we were left with sand in the bottom of the. Uh, so he 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 had to have potatoes completely peeled, and uh, um, beets completely peeled, and he he didn't want anything of it. Um, thing. As far as horse meat is concerned, there was a a fellow that uh, that uh, is called Hoggins, uh, which was in uh, a place called New Westminster. They they served um, horse meat for I I don't know if it's still available that, but he would he would not have anything part of of it although they the uh, the the cook um, that at Stutthof would try to make it uh, sort of <laughs> um you know uh palatable but he said it they just never could uh so and, and a lot of the horses were older horses they were ready for the slaughter basically thing. And as the group, as the evacuees, um, uh, the, the, the German citizens, as they evacuated towards the West, they, they couldn't keep the, the, the horses. They couldn't keep the, the uh, they, they let the horses go. So that's um, part of, of the abundance that, that they found is that there was horse meat and and of course being starved um uh you know on a starvation kind of diet um the the horse meats seemed quite palatable at the time but my dad said they had too much of it so thank you for sharing that what kinds of clothing were worn in Stutthof? Well, the prisoner's uniform was uh, where it's kind of zebra striped and blue uh, striped uniforms. The, the uniform was made of very thin material and consisted of a jacket and pants and a, and a round hat called kokolat. Kalat. Yes. Was it Kalat? Kalat. Uh, for the head in the wind uh, okay the prisoner's number was uh, and, and actually that's the other thing the the prisoner's number was on the left of the jacket and, and the pants uh, and under the number was the and, and directly under the number 
was whether you know from Norway and uh, D for Denmark, P for Poland, uh, R for Russia, and 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 so on, and R D for Germany, and F for France. Mm -hmm. uh, so they they know which country you 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 came from. Under the letter was a triangle that identified the type of prisoners and why they were arrested. The red triangle was for pol political prisoners, the green for criminal prisoners, violet for um, different Bible groups, black for sexual cr uh, criminals. If, if the triangle was upwards, the prisoners was uh, serving life in prison. So that's that's sort of the kind of detail. However, the the police officers they never got the uh, that that kind of a uniform. They got actually um, were given the Budaglio uniforms, and the P, uh, Pietro Budaglio was the one mm -hmm. that's, he was an Italian. Yes. And the Italian, um, um, the average Italian is a lot <laughs> shorter than the average Norwegian, <laughs> Scandinavian. So um, they um, uh, they were fairly uncomfortable, uh, to say the least. Um, Budaglio uh, signed an armistice uh, agreement in in, in uh, about uh, October thirteenth, nineteen forty three, Udaglia and the Kingdom of Italy officially declared war on the Nazi Germany. Now the Germans always regarded the Budaglio uniforms as traitor uniforms. Mm. So, <laughs> anyway, that's thank you for sharing that. The memoir refers as well to the Espeland camp. What can you, the Espeland camp? Oh, es Espeland, oh, Espeland Espe was... Um, can you tell us about it in some detail? I'm sorry? Oh, can you tell us about the Espeland camp, which is alluded to in certain passages of the book? Yeah, the Espeland was, uh, was uh, a camp that... Um, well, actually, Espelon was was mostly political prisoners, okay. and it was an a high elevation. Um, uh, but um, some of the police uh, uh, were incinerate uh, in incarcerated there uh, as a as a stopover for for Greeny. Actually, and most uh, all, most all of them were transferred to to Greeny concentration camp but Espelon was 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 mainly uh, uh, political prisoners another place of curiosity alluded to in your camp is the Verderhof farm what can you tell us about it well when okay um our um, the the police um, in January of uh, January 8, actually, I think it was January 8th of 1944, were transferred to a different camp called Sunderlager. 
and at Sunder, Sunderlager was part of the um, farm of uh, of Werder, uh, was it uh, was it called Werderhof? Um, Werderhof. Werderhof farm. Yeah, uh, it, it was part of the the, the Werderhof uh, farm. Now. Um, the the farm itself was the the, the first uh, when when the the Norwegian police entered uh, uh, Stutthof, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, entered Sunderlager, they were asked by uh, uh, Theodore Mayer, the second in command, to uh, whether or not they wanted you know to the they they uh, wanted uh, to to work, and most uh, and lot and they they almost all of them decided that uh, they could they could work on the farms, but not in the factories uh, as far as the uh, ammunition factories or or any of that. But they could work on the farm, and the reason for that was that their logic was that. That uh, the most of the German males were were uh, <clears throat> were on the Eastern Front, and the women were the only ones looking after the farms and and so on. So they decided that this would be a good reason to to join and 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 help, you know. And and in some cases, uh, they 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 had. Uh, uh, a fair amount of, of interaction with the, with it. Uh, they realized also that many of them didn't um, didn't support the the, the Nazi uh, agenda, and uh, they uh, actually served them tea and coffee and whatever, <laughs> and uh, uh, listened to the to the radios, illegal radios. And so um, they started to build a, a relationship with the farm. And, and one of the things that they always insisted on was to treat the people, the farmers, with respect. Okay. Always to treat them with respect. Not like some of the other, um, and I'm, I'm not going to mention who, but some of the other um, Prisoners that um, you know they stole um, anything they can lay their hands on, but the police. Well, that's that's part of why they're police. Uh, would wouldn't uh, would not um, um, you know uh, find them uh, would not uh, deal that way with with the farmers. Who was Theodore Meyer? What was his role in the events described in this memoir? Well, uh, Theodore Mayer was second in command um, of, of Stutthof concentration camp. And the Danish uh, uh, prisoners uh, called him, because he was so tall, they called him Stork. But they also had another name for him, and that was Murder Mayer. Because uh, according to to the Danes, he was in charge of executions. Wow! Thank you for sharing. Uh, so anyway, um, I I could give you the uh, 
the information on 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 on, uh, on Mayor Theodore Mayor, but uh, but you know it, it, you can read it in the history books. So to speak. Sure. Can you tell us about Jonas Lai? Who was he? Can you put him in context for us? Yeah, Jonas Lee. Who would pronounce Lee? Actually, Lee. Um, Jonas Lee was a member of the National Assembly, and actually, he was uh, of uh, Bidkunquisling, and he was a minister of police. And actually, the one thing that is brought out um, in uh, in the story, oh, actually, it's not put in 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 the in the book, is that uh, Jonas Lee signed the execution order for Gunnar Elipsen, even though him, Lee and Elipsen were childhood classmates and mm-hmm. friends. So he he betrayed his his own his own uh, uh, childhood member. Uh, <clears throat> now Jonas Lee was also uh, he was a uh, actually, before the war, he was a war correspondent on the east and the western and eastern front uh, during World War One. He was a successful police officer in the 1930s, believe it or not, and was the police officer that was charged with accompanying Leon Trotsky, the communist revolutionary leader, on a. F- on a on his freight on a freighter from Norway to uh, to his exile in Mexico. So you know <laughs> that's uh, but where he got his political conviction may have been influenced by his uncle Niels Schad, who was very much an anti-Semite. So that's where he he got. Uh, I believe, his uh, his political convictions. Who is Gerhard Flesch? Why is he notable in the memoir? Yeah, Gerhard Gerhard Flesch was was uh, he uh, he was at Falstad, and he uh, and he he was. He was the uh, one of the the groups called the Einsatzgruppen uh, Commando, and um, which is the, the the killing squad. And he used the Falstad uh, Skog, what was called Falstad Skogen, uh, the forest, to execute prisoners. And in fact, <clears throat> when my dad was uh, on on. It was a December eighth. He was asked a number of the police. There's 31 police officers that, um, including my dad, that was um, that was at Falstad, and and he was and the police officers were told to to go, um, you know, to get ready, which they thought that Gerhard Flesch was going to take them into the forest and shoot him. That was their, their, you know, that was what was expected because he was a part of the Einsatzkommando, which, you know, the killing squad. And um, 
and he had done a lot of that uh, uh, killing of the POWs. So my father thought that part of uh, what they were going to uh, get was uh, execution. Mm. Who was Wilhelm Redis? Redies. Okay, Redies. Redies. Who was Wilhelm Redies? What stands out about him? Um, at the onset of World War II, Redies was responsible for implementing the German racial laws in Prussia, overseeing the deportation of Jews from East Prussia. That was his main occupation. Redius was then given the task of eradicating 1,558 Jewish deportees to be deemed mentally ill. Redius borrowed gas vans and personal and personnel from other SS unit and offered them a bounty of 10 Reichsmarks for each Jew killed. It took 19 days to accomplish these killings. And Redius then reneged on the payment. What a sleazeball that guy was. Wow. Following the German invasion of Norway, Redius was transferred there to work with Reichskommissar Josef Terboven. In March 1941, citing reports of large numbers of Norwegian women impregnated by the German soldiers, Redius implemented the German Lebensborn program in Norway. Who was he was the one in charge of the Lebensborn project. The program encouraged the production of racially pure Aryan children who were usually sired by SS troops. Unfortunately, 8,000 children were born under the auspices of the program, making Norway second only to Germany in registered Aryan births during the war. I, I'm humbled. I, uh, I did, <laughs> yeah, I'm ashamed. Thank you. Thank you for your words and your words of remorse and your words of contrition. Uh, they're well received. Thank you for your erudite and eloquent words. Can you tell us about Werner Hopp? Why is he significant? In April 1941, Hopp was given the command of an infantry company. He was badly wounded in the in uh, the spring of 1942 during clashes with the Red Army and uh, south of Leningrad, actually. After his recovery, Hopp was sent to Auschwitz as head of the guard detachment. He, he was then recommended for the post command of Stutthof concentration camp near Danzig. So he became the uh, commandant of, of, but on, on, uh, on, when it was evacuated, he actually, him and Theodore Mayer, um, went to a sub camp in uh, in Lauenburg, about 40 kilometers south of 
Stutov. So um, they went to a different camp once uh, uh, Stutov was um, was evacuated. It, it, the memoir alludes to Finnish prisoners in Stutthof and Danish prisoners in Stutthof. Um, in what ways were the experiences of other Scandinavians in Stutthof similar or different to those of your father and those of other Norwegians? Um, well, both the, the, the Danish and the, uh, the Norwegians were considered uh, you know Scandinavians so they were better treated to you know to be honest with you they were better treated than the, the you know the, the, the Jewish people or, or the uh, uh, Slavic people and and, and so Lithuanians and Russians and, and and so on now the Finnish prisoners bordered on on there were not really Scandinavian per se or Aryan, but they were also um, like the uh, like well the the, the Finnish um, prisoners were situated in uh, also in Sunderlager, and um, they were kind of better treated than the uh, main camp uh, Stutov. Now the Danish prisoners were were in the main camp. They were uh, in barrack, I believe uh, 14 um, in uh, in Stutov. And they were um, considered like a uh, like a little bit more freedom um, at at um, at Sunderlager, the Finnish prisoners, along with the Nor- Norwegian, were uh, were considerably better treated. But I think it may be also uh, the reason being that uh, um, you know the the association with the uh, uh, Scandinavian type of of uh, peninsula, <laughs> so to speak. But anyway, can you tell us about some of the events that impacted Norway and Norwegians toward the end of the Second World War? For example, can you comment on the massacre at Pelserhalken? Can you co- comment on the sinking of the Kaperkona vessel, the Thielbeck vessel, the Deutschland vessel? Can you comment on how the death of Adolf Hitler? impacted Norway and Norwegians. Can you devote some time to these events which took place toward the end of the Second World War? Well, um, you know, the as 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 the uh, as the uh, as the book um, uh, refers to that the 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 Wolfgang, the the um, was was um, was tied up to the Cap Arcona, and and uh, actually uh, the Tilbeck, and uh, they caught a um, uh, a breeze, because one of the uh, uh, Sholden is his name, was one of the police officers used to be part 
of, of the merchant marines. And so he knew about navigation. And so he told them to, to lift up the blankets to make a sail. And they caught a breeze and went into Pelserhaken. Uh, now, um, it was um, it, it was it was a it was a barge, so uh, without a tugboat. So uh, they uh, they went in into the and so did the uh, um, um, a barge called Waterland. Now the Waterland and the uh, Wolfgang together uh, the, um, went to catch the breeze and 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 so on and in 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 um Pelserhagen, uh in then they landed on a beach called Pelserhagen. now when they were being evacuated like um the 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 most of the um the the prisoners you know they could could walk and and so on but there were those that were sick they were uh, in the bottom of the uh, of the barges. They were really sick, and and uh, um, they um, they were unable to move on their own. And all of a sudden, a um, a group of Marines, uh, German Marines, uh, came, and they massacred those people left on the uh, on the barges and they massacred them and shot into the holes and and and, and so on and uh, um, that's that is one thing that that I uh, I got a hard time dealing with if, if you know what I mean but yes. um, as far as the cap or, um, as far as the sinking of the cap Arcona is concerned, uh, before that, my father uh, remembered that the there was a there was a ship that was going to take them uh, the uh, the prisoners from Neustad to the cap to the cap Arcona and Tilbeck and so on. It was called Athens. And Athens, my father mentioned the fact that the the when the British planes came over, uh, flew over, that they would, um, that they shot off the the mast and 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 so on, and the and the Germans actually were were fighting back, but they they couldn't against the the the, the planes, uh, and so on, and and those planes. Flew over and and they sank the Cap Arcona, the Tilbeck, and the um, and the Deutschland uh, ships, um, and um, um, he didn't know that at the time that that's what they were doing, but um, then the British came uh, in, um, I think. I think it was May 3rd, um, 1945. The British came and the, the, the war was over. And the, and the Norwegian police, the, the colonel, uh, the British colonel asked the Norwegian police to restore um, 
law and order, simply because the 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 opportunity for some of the prisoners to take vengeance on the local um, citizens, the German citizens, was uh, they actually killed a, a number of them and 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 so on. So they, the colonel asked the Norwegians police to uh, became uh, to restore uh, law and order. <laughs> And they became the the, the hated uh, Nazis, um, um, you know, uh, be, because they 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 were able to restrain the uh, the the prisoners. So it's it's um, it was an it's an interesting. They developed. They they went into the uh, um, marine. Um, uh, uh, School called Nor, uh, and they named it. They renamed it Norway House, and that's um, and that's the story of that. Now, I've been in touch with um, Dixie Simonson. Uh, she is a parliamentary uh, officer in uh, the parliament in Denmark. I, I've been in contact with her, and uh, she has sent me some some uh, uh some inform uh, a lot of information actually on the uh, well on the lithuanians but also on the, the on the white buses and so i have footage of the white buses and so on and and uh, i still haven't been determined whether uh, some of those were uh, norwegian uh, uh police prisoners that you know were were uh, travel on the white buses um, but uh, so so what I'm saying is that that it, it, the community is spreading it, um, like like Dixie and and uh, and and others are are starting to to uh, to see the importance of uh, of of um, you know, the, the, to tell the story of of uh, 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 the the whole idea of of a of a war based on the myth of racial superiority, it's got to stop. You know, I I I'm totally I'm. And and it's happening today. You know, if you don't like somebody, you you find they're racial. They're they're this. They're the, they're that, and uh, uh, it gets pushed. If if you don't like somebody, or or if you just disagree politically uh, with someone, they're uh, you know you 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 throw a term out uh, like racial and 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 this kind of stuff. I, I think it's. My personal opinion is that it's got to stop, and uh, hopefully, this story um, with the documentary and my father's uh, story, as far as the uh, Stutoff and 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 the miniseries, that that can help to uh, you know to to put it to rest. And uh, yeah, anyways, thank you. I, I'd be curious to ask you. As a, as a last question, where has your time been going since the completion 
of this book, can you comment on the documentary that is forthcoming about the events presented in the memoir and other places where your time and attention have been going? Well, after I, I, I wrote the book, I realized um, um, and put it into the publishing, I realized that the story is, you know, who's going to pick up the the, the book per se of of, uh, of the Norwegian police and so on. It's not a quote sexy story, so to speak. But um, so my my original reason for it was to to educate and and help uh, people, especially Norwegian immigrants. And, you know, there's probably about three million uh, Norwegian de descendant immigrants in North America, or it could be more. I don't. I don't know. I wanted to for them to to re to realize that Norway was at war, and that um, the police, uh, as a whole, uh, stood up against the Nazis. And this could be an example of that. The documentary that that I wanted to do, I've I've got, um, um, you know, my uh, Anna San and uh, John Banovich and and a number of others that are um, even Helge Helge Høybroten in in Norway to uh, to look at. Uh, how they may you know may assist in this the main reason for for this is to tell the story and to tell tell it accurately this this whole idea of uh, of getting the archived information in 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 uh, video on the um on the ar archived information to be able to present it and edit it and upscale it using super resolution and and other things that that uh, through the years we've developed and and to be able to 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 present it in such a way that um, you know that it's it's compelling the the other thing too it's a tv mini series i don't know where that's going uh, do it. I I would like to do it. I think uh, it'll be about seven to eleven episodes, <clears throat> and it's a dramatized version. And, and some of it I, I related to to you regarding the uh, my 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 father's um, at, attending Hock School, uh, Hanover Hock uh, Technical Hock School, and his his uh, uh, jet propulsion uh, his. Things that, um, and um, um, so you know, so that what what we're doing is basically we're seeing seeking interested people that that might want to tell this, this story. First of all, in the documentary, and then secondly, in the TV mini uh, series, um, it's a uh, you know it, it, the uh, the documentary is a. Uh, co-production between Norway and Canada. And uh, um, so, um, yeah. 
I feel unbelievably thankful for the time that you took to have this conversation with me today. And I feel blessed to have had the opportunity to honor your father and to pay homage to his soul and his memory by listening to the wisdom he bequeaths in this memoir and in this volume. I cannot thank you enough, humbly from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you. To our listeners, my name is Ari Barbalat, and I am your host today on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Tori Jorgensen. We have been in dialogue about his newly published book, Stutthof Diaries Collection for Truth and Honor, published in Vancouver, BC by Friesen Press 2022. This is the memoir of his father's experiences in the Stutthof concentration camp and his memoirs and memories of life in Norway before and leading up to the Second World War. Thank you very much. Thank you.